I don't know what I do around here. Welcome to the Mac DevOps YVR podcast. This podcast is about the Mac DevOps YVR conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We interview guests and discuss topics around managing Macs using open source software products inspired by DevOps. Our goal is to encourage developers and IT to work together to solve problems for our community. For more information, see our website, mdoyvr.com. This is the Mac DevOps podcast. Welcome to the Mac DevOps podcast. Today on our show, we have an amazing guest, Derek Fulmer. Derek, I'm your fan. I've been staring at your Twitter feed for a long time. When did we start hanging out? I don't know. Friends from apart, from far away. How's it going? That's us. It's going really well. So you've been Twitter stalking each other, I see. Yeah, yeah we're buds. You know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's easy, obviously, like we were just talking about, to meet a lot of interesting people via the internet. And, um, you know, I think it's even easier when you have a profession or various uh, hobbies that intersect with one another. So, uh, yeah, that's good people. Oh, thanks, Derek. I just noticed that you're doing lots of cool stuff. And I mean, I started uh, on Twitter following a friend of mine, Eric uh, Dreher, and he said, oh, the tech people are on here. So I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll hang out too. And, you know, you see you start hanging out with certain people and then, you know, people have lots of different interests. So you follow someone for tech and then all of a sudden they start about marching bands. That would be Steve Heyman from Apple. You know, he just loves his marching bands and Canadian (laughs) football leagues. And it drives me crazy, but he's a nice guy. I love him. I love Steve. But that's that's the thing with Twitter, right? You follow someone, maybe they post about Mac stuff or on my side, I talk about Final Cut. You know, JD talks about, I don't know what JD talks, I don't really follow him. I'm very angry at our mayor. Ah, uh, yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're very geographically centered on Spokane. I mean, that's yeah. you know, that's yeah, small small town politics. You small know, town I sort of, politics. yeah. I, I I saw a lot of those posts, and I was like, oh, Jay's really really upset about Spokane politics. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's okay. I think uh, Jay's kind of a, a JD of all trades, as it were. Yeah, Ooh. I'm just jaded. Ooh. Is really what what you're trying to say, but yes. that's okay. Well, you found me out. I think. You know, we're online because we want to build a better community and we want to share with others. And I think that's something we all share, that trait. And politics, you know, we don't want to get into it, but we want to start local. You want to build a better community. You want to start a conference. You want to start a meetup. You want to make your community better, your neighborhood better. Um, And I definitely appreciate you sharing a lot of stuff and your adventures on Twitter and what you're learning. And you've had... uh, even just the last couple of months, you've been pretty busy, like new books, new new projects. What's happening? Yeah, um, I've been really busy. I try to keep myself busy, not only, you know, during the nine to five, but from the seven to 10 or the seven to 11 hours as well. You know, whether I'm reading or, you know, learning a new programming language or a new tool set or exercising or, you know, whatever. Um, I try not to be too idle and let grass grow under my feet as it were. Um, you know, sort of like you were saying, it's it's important to want to give back and, and to sort of share whatever meager amount of, of knowledge that I have that I can back with whomever will, will listen to me in the community. Um, and I think that's because coming up really early in, in my technical career, um, that was something that was bestowed on me. Uh, you know, a shout out to, to Kitsy. I think we, we've all met them and, and had the, the pleasure of getting to know them 
but they were really instrumental in, in my early sort of technical journey and in, in foray uh, into IT. You know, we, we sat down and they showed me JAMP and the JSS and taught me like a five minute brain surgery crash course on bash scripting in a coffee shop in Chicago. And uh, I think it's just been a rocket ship ever since. So I'm, I'm grateful to that sort of community background and also sort of not growing up being interested in tech uh, and coming from like a very DIY punk rock ethos. Uh, it all just sort of converged for me and really clicked. So it's, it's great to have that community and that sort of uh, personal infrastructure for backup and support. I think it's really great. Yeah. I mean, I knew there was a reason I liked you your punk rock, punk rock, bad religion and all these other bands, but you like a lot of bands yeah. I've never heard of, which is fun. When you talk about a certain band, I'm like, I've never heard of them. Where have I been? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've, I've sort of had a, uh, had a knack for that my entire life. Um, I hate to, you know, say I'm the guy who liked X band before they were cool, but it just has kind of always, happened that way with several bands um but uh yeah i i have taken a lot more to twitter especially since i deleted instagram um trying to minimize the amount of social media that's consuming my waking hours um but i think it's a great platform not only to meet people but to share like you said like share what you're learning or share your struggles and for me i, I don't really have any qualms with that you know putting those things in the public realm, whether it be my struggles with my mental health or struggles with my professional development or personal development or something that's irritating me. And I might be subtweeting about a person or a group of people, um, which, you know, that, you know, yeah, <laughs> not anybody that we would know. Uh, we're yeah. steering clear of politics. Old school um, punks. Yeah, of I'll course. Always, you yeah. Know, not new school. Never. Um, <laughs> no, of course not. Um, but it's it's a, a good platform to get a smaller feedback loop and sort of a, a reminder that, you know, if you're learning X topic, somebody else is either learning it now or, or has gotten up in their up in their elbows with it. Um, or if you're struggling with something that is, you know, mental health related or what have you, know, that's that's out there as well. And you can find that community, even if it's transitory, you know, you, you get a reply or a like from somebody. And um, I think it's, it's helpful. And that's not to say that I'm a fanatic for social media. And I think more often than not, I, I dislike it, but sometimes you just want to share things. And I think that's sort of innate in all of us, or at least most of us. Yeah. I like to share interesting tidbits, but mostly my rule of thumb is share the inane tidbits, you know, stuff that's not yeah. too personally revealing, like, sure. but you know, like you said, we're learning stuff. Uh, other people might be interested. Um, you know, sometimes uh, I've gotten criticized by some friends that say, hey, Matt, man, your social game is off the hook. You're just posting a million things. You like everything. And now I know about it. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I think, hmm, should I like this tweet? Have I liked too many tweets today? <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you might like go back and like unlike it or unretweet something. Yeah, I've I've been there. Um, but but I think that that relationship is two sided because I guess to sort of stick on on the personal development or the learning theme, like if you're learning something, it helps a lot to, to talk about it. And I, I sort of fall back on this idea of like if you can't talk about something in a really basic fundamental conceptual level then you don't really understand it um so even if it's just like tweeting like hey i'm learning this language or this framework or what have you and you sort of talk about like a small little tidbit about it um you know that's that gets you feedback and if somebody that follows you or that somehow happens to stumble upon that 
you know, tweet or that bit of information, they can correct you or refine it, refute it or expand it. And I think that that's really crucial. Um, so for all of its warts, I, I think Twitter and social media has given me uh, a lot of good things. I mean, uh, almost 16 years ago, I met my wife on MySpace. So I've got like, I've like played the long game with the social media internet applications. So it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I'm constantly astounded by when I can tweet and then I get like, you know, a DM from somebody who's on a different continent, you know, and then I'm like, oh, somebody very far away saw my tweet and this is the immediate reaction to it. It's usually positive, yeah. but it's just like, oh, I saw that thing you wrote. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, yeah. it's a hit of dopamine like immediately well and we are all connected and i mean i've enjoyed being able to go to conferences and some in my case trade shows for the broadcasting sort of video editing side there's like nab in vegas where i'm not a big fan of vegas but i like the where everybody from around the world meets and it's nice mm -hmm. to be able to talk on twitter and with people that you've met or on slack but when you haven't met someone like we've never met in person but we can communicate it's just it's kind of it's really cool that we can you know have sort of a collaborative friendship and sort of encourage each other and yeah I, I agree and that's i think that's sort of what keeps me coming back and hitting hitting the button for the food pellet so to speak <laughs> <laughs> i think you posted that uh was it the is it hate by six the yeah the 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 live stream of that dude is he from jersey um and he has this live stream or his channel where he's just basically tried to archive or i guess in pre-COVID times film every single hardcore show ever on the East coast or somewhere like yeah. I don't know how far he traveled, but sunny, sunny Singh of hate five, six has been filming hardcore punk shows for years now. And he has such a, a wealth of an archive of hardcore and punk bands from all over the world. I like, I know he's traveled to Australia and Japan and Europe. Um, but the video that you're, you're referencing was a live stream talking about how he, basically archives all of his terabytes of data. And as a person who's into hardcore and punk rock and who's into, you know, technology, it was just sort of that perfect meeting point of these two awesome things. And even though I don't like really work with storage a lot, you know, I, I have a, a foundational understanding of those concepts, but it really was presented in a fashion where like, even if you don't know hardcore and punk rock, and if you don't know a lot about storage or, uh, SANS and SATA drives and all this stuff, like it's very approachable. And he was presenting computer science concepts and storage concepts at an advanced level um, that could be, you know, sort of explain like I'm five. Yeah. Uh, I mean, representations. So. I didn't know any of the bands, the hardcore bands that he mentioned, because yeah. I mean, they're just, they're very local, hyper local, <laughs> um, you know, but I'm a bit of a storage nerd and, you know, I don't definitely know at all. I only know some, but I'm definitely a storage nerd and build lots of storage for video clients and, you know, and th that sort of thing. But uh, I, I don't know. I was, I was attract so attracted to watching that live stream where he's just like live showing, he's like, walking us through building a free, his free NAS server. And then he was mm -hmm. talking about, Oh, I had this Synology. I still have the Synology, this NAS and I'm, I'm building a free NAS. And, and part of me was like, Oh, I know everything. And then he's talking and I'm like, Oh, I didn't know that. And then he's talking about how, <laughs> well, I don't know anything, but I'm just building things. And I just thought it was so down to earth and a great little stream, like, you know, to try and bring attention to his project about how he's, you know, building a service for other people. And, you know, I just, it was very cool. And I would have never seen that. So thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to share. Yeah, I, I think what he's doing 
from an archival standpoint for, for punk and hardcore in, in the country, especially, is really important because there are just so many bands that don't get publicity and they are, you know, they pop up and then they explode and then they're gone and they're never heard of again. Um, but also from like a technical standpoint, he has done a lot of posting about, you know, sort of how to algorithmically edit the videos and what his approach is and sort of computer science topics that he uses uh, in leverage to those approaches. So yeah, it's, it's just a wealth of awesome stuff that's out there. So you're not a storage nerd, Derek. What are you? What kind of nerd? <sighs> I, I, I like a lot of stuff. I think early on uh, in my career, I was very much a Mac nerd. Um, and then I was really a, a networking nerd um, to be specific. But I think in general, I'm just a very nerdy, geeky person, even though I don't think my sort of external uh, self gives that off all the time. Um, you know, from, from a technical standpoint, I am a huge Linux nerd. Uh, I love just anything Linux and Unix. Um, I am, have lately gotten into containerization and I'm, I'm really, really becoming a Docker nerd. Um, but yeah, yeah anything you, you can, you can throw at me. I'm a music nerd, uh, a Star Wars nerd. It's just, <laughs> just where I, where I come from and what I grew up. And, you know, I think when I, I clash that with my other bits of personality that I have, it's, um, people don't, I don't think ex expect me being a nerdy person. <laughs> Well, I noticed you posted you bought the Understanding the Linux Kernel um, book from O'Reilly. Have you cracked it open? Yeah, I, I found that for like $2 online. <laughs> and I, I knew that like I wanted it and I know it's super old, but I think a lot of the, the concepts are going to be relevant. Um, right now, I'm still working through a couple of other books, um, but I'll probably crack that one here and there. Um, really trying to get my head around at a deeper level on like different namespaces and control groups and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's it's good stuff. You know, always always be learning, always be you know curious. I think that's something that really keeps me going as a as a professional and as a hobbyist with technology. Just like being curious, which I didn't really have that mindset as a kid. Um, you know, I was more interested in you know playing the guitar or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think being curious and like trying to think about how things are made and sort of how you can approach making them better or understanding things better. And I think that in and of itself comes from sort of my liberal arts background, you know, from, from university and just sort of asking why and why to the why <laughs> and, you know, sort of turtles all the way down when it comes to that. Um, so yeah, it's being persistent and curious, I think is tantamount to who I am as a person. Nice. So you got a liberal arts degree, not a comp sci degree. No, I went to college um, and was going to be a teacher. I was going to teach uh, high school history and sort of civics and things like that. But then when I went and sat in a classroom and did an observation, I said, no, this, this is not for me. Um, I, am, I am not interested in the sort of bureau bureaucracy and, and all the other externalities that are present in teaching. Um, so I said, oh, I'll study history. So I got a, a bachelor's in history and the original plan was to go and get a master's and then a PhD and write and research and speak and teach. Uh, but when I graduated with all that awesome student loan debt, um, I said, no, I can't afford anything higher than this. And I just kind of wrote it out for a bit and literally fell backwards uh, into working in IT via uh, working Apple retail as so many 
the Mac admins community, I think, have done or have experienced or know secondhand of. So it's not been a standard track, I, I guess you could say, which as what I'm finding is, you know, some of the best engineers that I've met and have worked with are folks that have gone to art school or graphic designers in a, in a past life, you know. It takes a lot of different kinds of people to build solutions or to fix problems or to think about solving problems in unique ways. And I think if we were all comp sci majors, it would be really boring. Um, not to, to dunk on comp sci majors because there's some really interesting stuff there. I'll forgive you. GD is <laughs> the only one around here. I got like the philosophy, history, communications degree. So the, the funny thing about that is though, uh, I don't really work in in comp sci, I don't really do programming on a regular basis. I hack at yeah. scripts and things like that, but I'm actually yeah. not in that. And most comp sci folks are actually management. They're not, they're not actually doing what they went to school hoping to do, which is to bang out code all day long. Yeah. Well, and then I think there's the argument of like comp sci does not equal programming and vice yeah, versa, right. um, which I think there are some really brilliant computer scientists doing research work at the PhD level that, you know, they, they're not working at a Facebook or an Apple or a Netflix, you know, but they're moving things forward for the rest of us to have the ability to, to work on and, and various things like that. So, yeah. I couldn't help you with the differential equation if I wanted to. I, I'm so bad at math. <laughs> uh, thank, thank God for calculator app on the iPhone. Right. <laughs> if you turn it sideways, it. it gives you a lot more options too. Yeah, like, am I the only one who knew that that was a thing for longer than like <laughs> the last six months? No, there was a calculator uh, app. Um, <laughs> I've been using Spotlight. Spotlight no. does all my math. Command space. Yeah, that's the only yeah. calculator you need. Hey really Siri, is. can you add these two numbers for me? Oh, that's mm. cheating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to go into a long digression on Siri. Right now, the problem oh. in my house uh, is that I got a couple of the HomePod minis for the kids, but the, the range of the microphone pickup. So I go to talk to my phone and the HomePod mini in someone else's room is answering. <laughs> and so yeah. I, for a second, I think that the HomePod mini is not working, but it's like telling me the history of farts in the other room and not in the room that I want it, you know. <laughs> Or it's like silently waiting for you and you didn't hear it ding or you didn't see the light flash and you're like, okay, it's just not listening to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I get yeah. that. Yeah. I love my HomePod mini. It's been, yeah. it's been great. No, they're awesome. We can like play music, you know, through all of them. I mean, I've, I had the Sonus before, but I really like the HomePod minis. It's, it's been really good. Yeah. The kids like asking jokes before bedtime, so. <laughs> <laughs> High quality future edge use of the HomePod. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Docker, I'm still struggling with Docker, but I don't have any p solutions that uh, need Docker right now. So I haven't thrown yeah. myself into it. But, yeah. you know, the idea of persistent data storage and getting containers to talk to each other just has always made my head explode. And I even saw that Julia, our favorite uh, zine networking person, was talking about asking someone how bridging works in Docker virtualization because it was even, you know, hurting her head. And there's a lot in there that oh, sure. hurts your head. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, I, I've sort of seen a pattern in the last couple of years where I'll get sort of, for lack of better words, like burnout on a certain technology. And I think the first one that I really realized that was was 
the Mac OS or the Apple ecosystem where I had been a user of the platform for more than a decade and then an admin and a consultant for Apple stuff. And I'm just like, all right, I've, I've had enough, like I need a break. And then what really sort of got me stoked on technology and sort of workflow tooling and was, was Ansible. And when I was able to put that to work um, at my current position, uh, really delivering some some good value really quickly and it sort of like spiked up again like all right i'm i'm jazzed on this and let's let's keep moving forward and then it sort of slumped down again and then when i thought you know docker and containers like it's it's not a necessarily a, a new thing but it's newish to me um when i first had to encounter it i had a client at my last job who needed to run a unify network controller on a synology nas the only thing available for it was in a, in a container so I think I had it spun up within three hours on a Friday afternoon. And it was like, awesome, thumbs up, you did it. And I didn't really like understand all of it, aside from like, okay, I'm running commands in, in a shell and I'm spinning up an application, a tiny, tiny, tiny VM, basically. Um, and I didn't really touch it for very long after that. But as I've read and researched and dove into how it works at like the kernel layer and how things are abstracted from each other, like that... Uh, example you give with with Julia Evans, like bridge bridging network namespaces between each other in the kernel and having it reach out to like the public internet and and vice versa, and then mapping ports through uh, effectively with just like a bunch of IP tables rules. And this is sort of a, a hand wavy uh, description of it, but yeah, it's you're publishing ports and it's creating at the lower level. You know, it's a an IP tables rule that does NAT or you know IP masquerading and you can now get out to the internet or to another container on the same host. And yeah, I think the more that I go deeper and deeper into certain things like this, not only like do I feel smarter, even though like it's, you know, I think anybody could do it if they really sat down and, and read and, and practiced, but I can then share that information and say like, oh, I can answer your question. And I'm not an expert by any means, but here's my experience. And it just sort of goes back to that sharing with the community. Like I'm not going to hoard all of my information because that person could go find it. I'm just at the right place at the right time to say, oh yeah, I've experienced that. Here's what it probably is, you know, but don't hold me to it. Um, the sort of permanent caveat to things. Um, but yeah, I, I think Docker's and, um, is a, is a great tool and LXC or LXD on, on Linux is great too. I've used that for some proof of concept projects um, a couple of years ago. So if anybody's out there curious about containerization, you know, it's more approachable than you probably think it is, especially if you're already a sysadmin. Um, yeah, just watch some YouTube, uh, read some Docker docs, and I, I think you'll feel a lot more comfortable within a couple of hours. I do a lot in Docker, and and I love it because it's portable. As long as you write your data outside of the Docker <laughs> container itself, you know, minor details. But um, yeah, being able to to spin things up, I use it a lot for uh, Pi-hole and and things like that. Where uh, I want to run that on Synology, and and uh, you know, that's a that's a great way of of doing that. Maybe we should have some talks on Docker at the next Mac DevOps conference. Hmm. Hmm. There's an idea. Yeah, I think whenever you start to talk about persistence, you know, like like data persistence or stateful applications and things like that, then you can really go further and further into it with like Docker volumes, bind mounts, and things like that. But 
yeah, because I think storage is such a weaker area for me, um, that took a lot more time to, to really to really grok and, and wrap my head around, but it's doable. Yeah, once you once you lose a database or two, you you figure out. <laughs> you start to think about every edge case, yeah. edge right? Case and you don't want to get burned again, right? Yeah, yeah. I need yep. to. I need to. Maybe I should set up Monkey Report in a Docker container because I don't really care about the database since it repopulates if I lose it. But you know, it'd be nice to figure out how to keep it persistent. Or <laughs> yeah, like I think I think the advice that I would give anybody, like if you want to learn how to package up your own software in a container or in like a Docker image, just write a really simple script that like echoes something to standard out and then follow like the basic syntax or primitives for a Docker file, build the image and then run it. And then you can get like, okay, here is the bare bones things that you need to run a script or whatever inside a container. And, um, you know, apart from that, I would say don't try to understand everything in depth at once because if you're anything like me and you're given a project say hey go implement x okay now my brain says go read the rfc about x and you don't necessarily need to do that um so i had to really nip that early on uh and not go that deep so quickly especially if things are uh time sensitive yeah so what, what is your daily driver these days? You said you used to be a Mac person or you moved on? Are you Mac day-to-day or are you Linux? or? Yeah, for, for work, I've got a company-issued 2016 MacBook Pro uh, non-touch bar. Thankfully, I'm not a fan of the touch bar. So much um, hate for the touch bar. Come on. I, I just don't get it, you know. Um, but yeah, for my personal computers, I've got a Lenovo X1 Carbon running Fedora workstation. Um and I really just kind of cycle between those two things and my iPhone. You know, I think we're all glued to those things. <laughs> so what do you think about the whole CentOS stream initiative, whether moving CentOS or CentOS to this new forward-looking version? I thought Fedora was supposed to be the, you know, the forward-looking. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot of moving parts in that area. Um, I would like to see some sort of more unification around Linux on the desktop. You know, I think Ubuntu is so accessible and I think Canonical does a really good job of, of making it accessible uh, from a desktop and a server perspective. Um, but I don't know. I think if you're curious, you're going to try a bunch of different stuff anyway. So I think setting a standard is sort of pointless in that regard. Um, but yeah, as far as like the CentOS and the CentOS stream stuff goes, uh, I sort of knew it was, it was inevitable that somebody was going to pick that up and then make a CentOS replacement almost immediately. And, you know, here we have Rocky Linux that they're talking about releasing like sometime later this year or next year. And then there's really cool projects like uh, Asahi Linux, which they're trying to get to run natively on um, Mac OS ARM, you know, M1 chips, uh, which would be awesome. I think that's really great. And there's feats of engineering that are going on there. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really cool part of it. It's sort of an always changing landscape and if you feel confident and comfortable enough with sort of the fundamental um, administration, administrative or user tasks, you can port yourself really quickly from one distribution or, or environment to another. So it's just sort of learning syntax basics, and I wouldn't lose sleep over that. So if you want to avoid the 
knowing which commands to run in Ubuntu versus CentOS, then you just run Docker and just run the applications <laughs> you want, right? Is that, I finally figured yeah, out whether, what the I reason was. I think was. you did. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've got a friend who, who loves trying out different Linux distributions and VMs. And I think he, he found like Hannah Montana Linux, which is an entire Linux distribution that is all Hannah Montana. Uh, and then he found some GitHub repository where he could run Mac OS in Docker just for iMessage. He's, I think he ran that for a couple of weeks and um, I, uh, whatever, <laughs> it's cool, but um, sort of a lot of administrative overhead for just iMessage, which if Apple could open source it, maybe could find itself elsewhere. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, it's good to have a sense of adventure. I mean, I remember getting a PC so I could... I don't know, do a little bit of Windows a long time ago. And then, you know, because I was mostly Mac OS and, and actual university slash Unix, you know, like, but I wanted yeah. to learn more about all the different Linux flavors. So I played with lots of different ones. But when you, you know, maybe have a really tough job or lots of work or maybe a family and a job or kids or when your focus starts to go, yep. or maybe there's a pandemic and you know, it's like survival mode, you know, you, you kind of have to laser hone your time. Like, where, where do you spend your time sometimes? Like, yeah tasting every beer, trying every Linux, or trying to put out the dumpster fires at your work. You, know? you yeah, taste wherever. every beer and try working on Linux all at the same time. <laughs> so I cut my teeth on Solaris. So, you know, it's it's been an interesting ride to, to watch Linux really change over the years uh, since the early 90s uh, when it was first released. And, and I think all of the flavors have benefits in that, you know, depending on what you're trying to get done, that that preset build of tools and how they tie together can be beneficial. But I think out, if you're outside of that sysadmin sphere, it's very scary to get into. And I think there's that's where we've seen the benefit of Ubuntu and Ubuntu desktop uh, being very easy to set up and kind of universal. But the rest of them, I think, are are much, much, much scarier. Yeah, especially when you start talking about things like NixOS or even Arch Linux, you know, sort of those, which even as like a seasoned sysadmin with a lot of Linux and Unix experience, like I have, I've never set up Arch, but I know folks who have and, you know, you know good on them, but I just don't think it interests me. Um, but I think fundamentally Linux on the desktop and its availability on what if millions, billions of smartphones all over the world, you know, it's, it's ultimately a good thing because it's another option. Um, especially if you don't have the means or really the interest to spend a lot of money on a MacBook pro, you can get something, uh, for cheaper, uh, that runs Fedora out of the box, you know, or, or um, Ubuntu out of the box. And I think that's great. Um, and it just opens up a more, realm of possibilities for developer workflows and sort of bringing more people into the fold, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> I think that's great. More people from area. I mean, I remember playing with Yellow Dog Linux on PowerPC Max. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. yeah. And I, I guess this was the first place that, you know, I mean, when you're using Unix at university, you're not the admin of the Unix station. So you're just a user. But when you start yeah. playing with Linux, then you're the admin of your box and you learn about that kind of stuff. But the thing that really hit it for me was the package management systems like Yellow Dog had Yum and just the idea that you could build software and we were building it all from source, but you could build it in more of an automated way. Like here's your dependencies and having done it a couple of times from scratch, you're like, oh, please get my dependencies for me. Can you build it all for me? 
you know, and then in the early days of Mac, uh, Mac OS, it was Fink. And uh, now I use Mac ports and never touch brew. Um, but, you know, the idea of package management in the years before auto package, years before monkey, years before the, those projects that were doing that on the Mac side, you know, the idea that you could build software nicely and easily and it was open source and people were working together. And certainly I was always a user and not involved deeply in those systems. So I don't know about their backstories or all that kind of stuff, but certainly appreciate the labor the you know the all the hard work they put into it so uh still using mac ports to build like ffmpeg or image magic or different little binaries you need or you know it's great to have i mean before sourceforge turned into a different place <laughs> the sourceforge <laughs> and then now you know github gitlab bitbucket and i mean it was a slow awakening for me until we started the whole mac devops thing where the idea that people could work together and write software together, whether it starts with a script or a, a larger project, you know, monkey or auto package or something else. But mm -hmm. the idea that people can work together and that it is attainable, it is doable. We can work together and we can build stuff together. And um, yeah, it's the dream that we're all going to be loving each other and taking care of each other. Right. That's the goal. Anything that you're trying to figure out these days, what's your, um, your, uh, technical stumbling block what do you want to what do you want to wake up tomorrow and have figured out you know i, I think we're always going to have long running projects at our day jobs and there will always be something that i wish i could wake up tomorrow and just like all right this thing is done it's delivered it's in production or whatever do you deal day-to-day -day with people like with their problems or workflows or are you sort of at a distance and you have like longer sort of infrastructure projects or like where, what does your day it's, consist of? Like, yeah, it's definitely more of a ladder, um, you know, as the organization has grown and as the team has grown, um, I've been able to really, you know, sort of be distanced from end user support unless it's really sort of kicked up to me. Um, but because I'm responsible for, you know, sort of corporate network and, and cloud networking um, and sort of hybrid infrastructure, a lot of my work is more long running projects, um, which I think really suits the way that I work best. You know, I like to sort of break things up into much smaller tasks and sort of iterate over things and um, go through them bit by bit and sort of build a dependency map and then start to put the puzzle pieces together. Um, so yeah, it's definitely much, much more long running projects rather than, Hey, I've got an issue with my Wi-Fi or this, that, or the other, um, which is really good. I think too, for my career trajectory, like wanting to move into like building infrastructure and building tooling rather than, uh, you know, sort of general IT sysadmin work, um, it's just sort of where my interests have lied as of the last one or two years. Did you have to do any uh, big sudden changes for this pandemic or were you ready to go and rock the world with your cloud hybrid infrastructure fancy pants? I, it's, it's gonna sound, um, I don't know the word. You may not believe it, but, but we were, we were ready. Uh, we were ready and ready a good three months before, you know, the U.S. really uh, started to make a work from home shift. Um, I think what really set us up for success was connecting our headquarters office in Chicago to a remote office, a sort of a satellite office that we had in Vermont over uh, multiple redundant IPsec uh, site to site VPNs. And because we have multiple ISPs at both locations, we could load balance between them and sort of get the traffic moving where we wanted. And 
if we needed to do a site survivability uh, test, which we did back in December and passed, we considered it a success within our RTO, um, you know, we could do that. And the day after, you know, sort of leadership said, all right, everybody go home and you're working from home now, you know, folks connected to their VPN from their home networks and we didn't lose a beat and we were really well prepared for this sort of shift in remote working. And that was, um, a confidence booster for sure. And knowing all of the work that myself and, and my lead had put into that one project over the course of a solid 12 months through like researching and iterating and labbing and testing and flying out to Vermont and installing all this new hardware and testing it on site. Um, it felt like a huge payoff. Um, and then, yeah, we just sort of went to work and did a, a maintenance mode on things and responded to issues or, or errors as they cropped up. But knock on wood, it's been solid so far. And I'm really proud of that work. It's awesome. Yeah, you were saying something on Twitter about how you had done like a whole sort of uh, test with your team, right? Like, a... Yeah, we did a entire site survivability disaster recovery test where we failed over all of our services to that office in Vermont. And um, I think it only took us a good 45 minutes to an hour to get all of our core services up and running. But that's largely because we have built so much redundancy into the infrastructure that we could just turn things off and simulate an ISP or um, a building failure. You know, if our HQ in Chicago goes up in flames, we can just start directing traffic to our Vermont office and wait for VMs to spin up for all the other services. And that in and of itself was a really great um, experiment. I mean, the sort of numbering based on criticality, criticality, like what needs to come up first and in what order and what depends on what and things like that. So it really does sort of push your brain or your field of vision outside of the day-to-day, like, yeah, I work on these systems and they all talk to each other. But when you're forced to step out and say, okay, if you don't have all of these things and they're not readily available to you, how do you spin them back up or how do you make them available within X amount of time? Um, so yeah, I think the four of us that spent nine hours on a Saturday going through it, we certainly learned a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was a good exercise for sure. How's your uh, documentation game? Uh, if I were to toot my own horn, I think my documentation game is really good. Um, I do not consider a project really delivered and finished until it's been documented, and that goes for you know minor upgrades to something that's existing or something totally new. Um, I don't know if either of you use. Confluence, which is a sort of Atlassian documentation hub application. But the sort of team space that we have within there has the feature for a blog. And I thought, what would be a really cool thing to sort of alert the entire team about new changes other than like a blog post that doesn't necessarily require its own dedicated documentation space? So I proposed with you know, a blog post saying, hey, let's use this. And when something new goes into production or using a new tool or a workflow changes, put it here, we'll get emailed about it, and you can read it at your leisure. And that's been really great to see a, again, like a smaller feedback loop, like, uh, oh, now we're using LDAPS on communications between apps and servers on, on premises. Awesome. I heard about it, you know, in our stand-up meetings or whatever, so I'm aware of it. But if a stranger joined the team and they need to get caught up on really big new happenings, go read the blog. You know, it's all there. And it's sort of not self-documenting, but it's incumbent upon the person doing the work to write that blog. But I think it's just become an extra five minutes in a workflow that 
thankfully the the team has really latched on to it's it's been really good nice you're doing everything right i don't know about everything but i'm trying i'm trying really hard <laughs> and i think that that's because i really care about what i do and you know i know computers are ones and zeros and hardware and software and all those sort of basic primitives but i really like being able to deliver solid things to people who use it um, because i use technology and i hate having a terrible experience with it um, so i think that is also sort of a, a driving force into doing good good work period is you know, like how are the people who touch these these systems or these, these things that i'm building going to interact with it and how are they going to enjoy using it whether it's a vpn on our workstation or you know a script that i wrote two years ago that somebody now has to try and use for whatever use case. So that's, you know, trying to do it right. Nice. A lot of times that's yourself going back to that script too. What was (laughs) I, what was I thinking two years ago? What does this function do? What? So you're full in on the Linux thing, huh? I, I really like it. And I, I can't like point to why other than, it's accessible. I already knew about it as like a sysadmin and could sort of administrate Linux servers, but I, I would be lying if I said I didn't miss iMessage on the desktop or, uh, you know, Safari as a, as a web browser and, and things like that. But Firefox is great, you know, Discord and, and Signal, those are all great apps. And, you know, maybe if 2021 brings new MacBook Pros and I can afford them, maybe I'll grab one. But so far I'm more than more than satisfied with being able to sort of keep everything in Git or backed up on my local Synology. And if I want to try a new laptop that's from whatever vendor, I can just grab it, clone all my repos down and run back to work. And that's that's really cool that you you can do that, that you can't necessarily do that with everything on Mac OS. I mean you can, but uh, I think the experience is different for me. Yeah, I guess you don't play with MDM much. You're not administering or uh, configuring like endpoints. You're more back-end network stuff, right? Yeah, um, like we we use Jamf. I've administered Jamf and have done MDM work really earlier on in my career. Um, but yeah, now I'm just sort of managing the infrastructure that those applications run on top of. So what do you think about this total nightmare of uh, state-sponsored uh, infiltration of uh, supply line attacks, you know, into build processes and all this nice, <laughs> good news? <laughs> um, I can't say I'm shocked. You know, I think, I think there is, without going too political, I think that there is inherently some amount of risk that you assume, or you, that, that you assume sort of as a company, um, but... And again, this is not to say that these companies did this or anything, but when you don't devote resources, whether it be people or finances, to certain aspects of your supply chain or to your delivery of your product, I think that you're just sort of asking for a problem. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I think it's very likely. You know. well, they're complex systems, and in the case of the solar winds or the fire eye um, yep. attack they're saying it seemed like the uh the underdog of this was the notifications and i know most of us are usually drowning in notifications but they said it was like yes a, a new vpn credential or some you know credential that raised the the notification for the fire team they're like oh this new thing and i think malware bytes just said that they had been hacked too and they said it was they got a notification of some elevated credentials or privileges yeah. in microsoft like an app so <laughs> 
somebody's somewhere is reading or looking at notifications. Yeah. So it's, it's not always, you know, sort of the logistics or not having resources on things. Like sometimes it's already gotten past that, you know, which I think you can make the argument that if you have these resources, you could potentially stop that, but it's, I don't know. I think it's like a, a case of user awareness and education, um, you know, just being aware of things, which like you said, like we're always getting notifications. And if I had to commit a certain amount of time to thoroughly digest every single one that comes my way, like that would be a lot of brain power. I don't think anybody has all that mental bandwidth to expand on every single notification. So it's, it's human error and you can't necessarily point blame and assign fault to one person um, when it's already reached, you know, an end user's desk, right? Like the problem's already there. It's not their fault that, you know, these are complicated systems and yeah, they really we, are. we need better and better ways to triage the uh, notifications, messages, no, you know, uh, warnings, uh, emails, Slack notifications or whatever we have. Well, it also highlights looking at outbound communication. So much of our networking and network infrastructure is looking for outside attacks on the coming right mm-hmm. from the outside in. And we need to also look at the inside going out. Um, and looking at what those connections are and what persistent connections are, are happening along those lines. Yeah. So things like stateful inspection and, uh, you know, various next gen firewall techniques that really hammer on that traffic, um, I think is, is really, really crucial, especially at that level of an organization. You would, you would think that those things are in place, but they aren't always. Yeah. I mean, it always brings you back to the hearing the Googlers, the, the, the Mac ops team talking about their beyond corp, like, you know, they, they already had a company on infrastructure in so many different countries where they're like, we can't have a corporate firewall. We just, we can't have that. So we're beyond the corp. We have to have a system that protects the endpoints at every level, no matter where they are, they're not going to be hiding behind a firewall. So the whole idea that don't hide behind your multiple firewalls or your VPNs, but protect the systems and the endpoints. Um, and, that involves some different, maybe different apps programming, different levels of intrusion <laughs> detection, yeah. and monitoring, logging. Uh, yeah, one day we'll get there. <laughs> one bit at a time. Yeah, and we just rely <laughs> on the help of lots of people and different teams working together, hopefully to help each other. Seems like with these recent attacks, you know, it's like the Microsoft Dart, uh, you know, this response team helps, you know, everybody's, all these different companies are trying to help each other. And I think sharing of information about intrusions and sharing of information on how to solve problems can help us. Um, yeah, and I think if nothing else, like maybe these these attacks can can bring down siloed teams. You know, I think if you have IT operations and you have information security or security analysts, and then you have software engineering and infrastructure engineers, like whatever your organization looks like, it is a really good time, in my opinion, to sort of rethink how we're collaborating and whether or not we should be embedding staff cross-functionally. Like if you can have a security analyst working with your operations team and vice versa and bringing in you know, for like a quarter or two to really get to understand what their approaches are and the things that they're looking for. I think it would really, A, obviously bring down those walls, but make your processes internally better um, and then just promote better communication and collaboration. I think it's a win for everybody. Um, 
that idea I, I would love to attribute to Thomas Larkin, uh, T-Lark on Twitter. Uh, that's something that he will rail against uh, often, you know, and that's something that's sort of been stuck in my brain ever since I first saw him tweet about that was like, why are we not embedding these people across teams? Like, why are we throwing things over the fence, so to speak, when we could find these issues and find solutions to these issues much earlier if we were just working with each other across team boundaries? Can I uh, interest you in a DevOps for Dummies book club? Hmm. Mm, yes. <laughs> I need it's a great to. I need book. to get back on it. Yeah. yeah Emily Emily's Freeman. great. I need to get that book. Yeah. Anytime you want to chat about it. No, I've, I've only read a few chapters and understood half of those, but no, DevOps <laughs> for Dummies. Uh, Emily Freeman wrote a really good book talking about getting those teams to work together. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it also comes down to personality types and, and backgrounds, sure. right? Because you have... Uh, the analytical side, which are going to be your security analysts, even your comp sci folks are going to be a little bit more analytical versus creative and problem solving and just trying to get get solutions out the door and, and move on to the next thing. Uh, we put so much pressure to just get things completed and out the door and ship that, that sometimes we're skipping over uh, some of the most basic and routine uh, vulnerabilities and things like that. Too true. You speak the truth. Soothsayer, am I? <laughs> yeah, it's a conundrum. Sometimes I feel like I'm the embedded IT in my department because I'm always just hovering around a team of people trying to help them get stuff done and then translate to other IT departments about what their needs are and try to talk tech to the IT people. Um, yeah, and trying to balance the security needs with the needs of the, the people that are actually doing jobs. <laughs> You know, yeah, like they're trying to accomplish X, Y, and Z. These was this is what they need. Okay, you know, yeah, it's definitely not the time to set up more fiefdoms. That's for sure. So, which is Absolutely. which is what Derek said. Well, Derek is right. Derek is awesome. <laughs> I try. Thank you. It's been a absolute pleasure talking to you, Derek. I'm going to keep Twitter stalking you. Um, you are awesome, and I uh, really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your journey on Twitter and social media. Um, if others wanted to Twitter stalk you, how how would they do that? And where else if, can we find yeah, you on the if, interwebs? If anybody other than Matt wants to Twitter stalk me, you can find me at Derek Fulmer, uh, D-E-R-E-K-F-U-L-M-E-R. Uh, that's my first and last name. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, but I don't really use it. Um, I'm thinking about doing a blog, again, sort of extrapolate on these small little snippets of, of tweets that I'm you know, learning or things that I'm working on professionally or personally. Um, so maybe I'll spin that up sometime soon. So yeah, follow me on Twitter. Let's interact. Let's learn from each other. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. This was a ton of fun. I, I really had a, had a great time. Excellent. Thank you for joining us, Derek. If you want to sponsor the Mac DevOps podcast, uh, just give us a shout at hello at mdoyvr.com. We'll be accepting sponsorships for the podcast and for the next year's conference. Thank you to our Mac DevOps YVR 2020 sponsors. Our sponsors for Mac DevOps YVR, the conference 2020. Mac Stadium, our platinum sponsor. Thank you so much for helping us out. Sauce Labs, our gold sponsor. Simple MDM, our silver sponsor. And Adigy, our bronze sponsor, as well as Elastic, our community sponsor. Thank you so much. Uh, we couldn't do it without you, and uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today for the Mac DevOps podcast. Thank you to our guests. And thank you to our co-hosts. Today's episode was edited by J.D. Strong. Please like and share this podcast on your favorite podcast service. You should just keep dancing after that. <laughs> <laughs>
No more dancing. Do the hustle. Do the hustle.